All right, we are going through the Old Testament chronologically. I hope you guys are keeping up. I hope it's been good for you. Uh, this is the tough sledding, though. I tell you, this is the tough sledding. Uh, you know, Genesis is pretty good. Got lots of nice stories. The beginning of Exodus continues the stories. And then you get into the end of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Man, there's just a lot of regulations. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of repetition. Uh, I remember the first time I read God's description on building the tabernacle. And I just thought, oh, my goodness. I, I believe by faith. This is an inspired text. But, oh, my goodness, this is hard. I am not a detailed person, you know. And when it gets into, you know, make it this many cubits and have this many gold rings and have it this way and that way. Boy, that's, that's, just, that's just tough sledding for me. My wife is a detailed person. And, and here's the deal. She's going, oh, my goodness, this is, that's hard to get Because not only does God tells Moses, uh, do this. And, and he describes it in great detail. And then it says, and they did this. And what does it do when it says they did that? They re-describe it in great detail. And, uh, but but one, of the, one of the answers there uh, is, why is it described in such great detail? One of the reasons is that Hebrews tells us that the earthly tabernacle is a copy of a heavenly reality. It's a copy of kind of the heavenly throne room of God. And that's why the details are so important. Uh, I don't know if you ever did this when you were, uh, when you were a child, but uh, when I was a kid, we used to make models. Model airplanes, model ships. You ever do that, Peter? Model cars, and you had the little model glue, and you'd put that all together. And, you know, and it was great. And we would do that, and we had, we had whole fleets. We'd, get, we'd pick the same scale so there wouldn't be different scales. And we had whole fleets of ships and, and airplanes and automobiles, and we would put our models together. And then when we would get bored with them, we'd take them outside and we'd put firecrackers in them and <laughs> blow, them, blow them up because boys like to blow stuff up. It's just fun to blow stuff up, so we'd blow them up. And all that hard work would come to naught. But it was fun blowing them up. It was fun making them, fun blowing them up. But the tabernacle is a model. It's a model of the heavenly reality. And the purpose of the tabernacle is that God desires to dwell with his people. The tabernacle is God desiring to dwell with his people. I want to be among you, even though you're rebellious, even though you're sinful, even though you do things deserving of death, uh, even though I've, I've brought you out of Egypt and you still make golden calves in the desert to worship false gods, which I told you explicitly not to do. Uh, you commit sexual immorality with the Moabite women. Uh, you just do all these terrible things, and, and, and still, I want to be with you. God's ultimate desire from Eden onward was to dwell with humanity, was to dwell with people. God wants to be our God, and he wants a people. He wants a family. He wants us, and he wanted Israel. And so he makes a tabernacle. Uh, the problem is human rebellion, human sin. We don't want God to be our God. We are rebellious. We want to do our own thing, and we want to do it our way. All right? That's the deal. We just, you know, uh, when somebody tells me what to do, uh, I, have a, I have a phrase, right? And, and you probably have this same phrase. You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. Don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. If you have a three-year-old child, they might not use those words, but that's their attitude. You're not the boss of me. I can put I can put my uh, finger I can put this bobby pin in this light socket. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> Go ahead. If you do it once and learn, you're okay. If you do it twice, you're a stupid kid, right? If you touch that collar twice, Stephen, you're you know. So you're not the boss of me. We want that. God says, yes, I am. I have created rules for your flourishing, for your happiness, for your joy. I, I have set these boundaries out there for you so that you might live the best possible life in a fallen world and know me and I can live with you. And the tabernacle then is a picture of God desiring to live with his people and doing the things necessary, the sacrifices, the high priest, all that stuff uh, to atone for people's sins so that God can remain in the middle of the camp. If you notice God, the tabernacle is in the middle of the camp of Israel. Uh, they're on four sides of him. 
and uh, and his presence is there. I didn't even read the Bible, so let me read. Let me read the the finishing of the tabernacle, and this will make this clear. Starting in in Exodus forty, starting at verse sixteen, Moses proceeded to do everything just as the Lord had commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month of the second year. Moses erected the tabernacle by setting down its bases, inserting the frames, attaching the crossbars, setting up the post. Then he spread the coverings over the tabernacle framework and put on the protective layers just as the Lord had commanded him. He took the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant and placed them inside the ark. Then he attached the carrying poles to the ark and he set the ark's cover in place of ato- the place of the atonement on top of it. Then he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle and hung the inner curtain to shield it from view, just as the Lord had commanded him. Next, Moses placed a table in the tabernacle along the north side of the holy place, just outside the inner curtain, and he arranged the bread of the presence on the table before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. He set the lampstand in the tabernacle across from the table on the south side of the holy place. Then he lit the lamps in the Lord's presence, just as the Lord had commanded him. He also placed the gold incense on the altar in the tabernacle in the holy place in front of the inner curtain. On it, he burned the fragrant incense, just as the Lord had commanded him. He hung the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle, and he placed the altar of burnt offering near the tabernacle entrance. On it, he offered a burnt offering and a grain offering, just as the Lord had commanded him. Next, Moses placed the uh, the wash basin between the tabernacle and the altar. He filled it with water so the priests could wash themselves. Moses and Aaron and Aaron's son used the water from it to wash their hands and feet. Whenever they approached the altar and entered the tabernacle, they washed themselves just as the Lord had commanded them. Then he hung the curtains forming the the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar. He set up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. So at last, Moses finished the work. When he finished the work, then the cloud covered the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our strength and our redeemer. So God desires to tabernacle with his people. The tabernacle then in all of its furnishings and all of its design ultimately becomes a picture to us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's something we call typology, uh, that there are types in the Old Testament that point to Christ. There are things that point to him that, that, that when we get to the New Testament, we read them and go, aha, aha, that's what that was about. We have all this detail. We have all these objects of furniture. And then when Christ comes, it all starts to come together. And we say, oh, this is God's plan of salvation. This is God's plan of tabernacling with us. In fact, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that Greek word for dwelt literally is tabernacled. God became flesh and he tabernacled. He, a tabernacle is just a tent. It's a camping. It's a place to camp. All right? The Boy Scouts go out and they tabernacle. They're camping. They're camping. God camps with humanity in Jesus Christ. He camped with the children of Israel in the, in the original tabernacle. He hung out with them. God's desire is to dwell with his people. And so let's look at the furnishings of the tabernacle. First of all, we come into the outside of the tabernacle. We don't go inside yet. We go into the curtained-off area, but it's outside. And there are two articles of furniture on the outside of the tabernacle. And the first one you encounter is the altar. And the altar, uh, and by the way, the things on the outside are bronze. Once you get inside the curtain, everything changes to gold. Well, what's that about? Well, outside is utilitarian. Outside is functional. Bronze is a good metal. It's not a bad metal. It's a good metal. 
And it, it kind of represents the now and the not yet. Gold represents the eternal, the glory, the, 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 uh, the abundance of God in the heavenly realms. But Adam's made of dirt. Well, bronze is somewhere between dirt and gold. Right? It's the now and the not yet. If you want to begin to reflect the glory of God, then I recommend on the three sunny days this summer, you lay out in the sun and get a little what? Get a little bronze. Get a little bronze. All right? The altar is bronze. The basin is bronze. Those things are on the outside. Um, And it's on the altar that countless sacrifices and offerings are made. And we also learned from the book of Hebrews, you know, just last year we went through the book of Hebrews, that these, that these sacrifices are a type, but they don't fulfill the ultimate purpose of the complete atonement for sin, but they do fulfill the purpose of allowing God and people to tabernacle together in Israel. And there's, 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 there's uh, uh, cattle, there's sheep, there's goats, there's pigeons. And somebody, somebody reflected on this this morning, they said, wouldn't have that place been a bloody mess? Yeah, it's a bloody mess. You know what life is in a sinful world? It's a bloody mess. It's a bloody mess. And so, yeah, I mean, they cleaned it on a regular basis, but, but, they, but, but thousands upon thousands, maybe in the, in the, the millions, in a thousand years, between the, uh, the building of this tabernacle and the coming of Christ, Animals were slaughtered in the tabernacle and then the temple in Jerusalem. It is the place of sacrifice, because why? The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and what's the first thing that God did? He sacrificed animals and made clothes for them. With sin comes death. And the animals serve as a replacement As a substitute, it points then to Christ. All the animal sacrifices are a picture of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. The difference is the animal sacrifices, as Hebrews tells us, had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. Why? They weren't sufficient. They didn't really work. Christ died, the Bible says, once for all. It's a better sacrifice. That's a better sacrifice. To this day, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD after Christ. Within a generation, Christ prophesied it. Within a generation, the temple was destroyed. To this day, the temple has not been rebuilt, and animal sacrifice has not not been reinstituted in Israel amongst the Jews. There are many Jews who have committed themselves to living the life of the Torah legally, to living the life of the Torah ritually. But one thing that that the Torah is not lived out in our day and age and hasn't been for 2,000 years is in the sacrificial offering system of the Jews. If you ask a good Jewish rabbi why that is, he would probably tell you that our sacrifices today are a devout and righteous life before a holy God. But if you ask a good Christian why aren't there any sacrifices anymore, our answer would be because they don't need to be. Because our Savior on the cross, as the perfect Lamb of God, said these words as his blood was being poured out and as he was perishing, he said, It is finished! Done. Atonement has been accomplished. This blood forgives sins. Now and forever. No more is needed. That's the altar. It represents the cross. The second piece of furniture is the basin. The basin, it represents cleansing. Why? Because cleansing is about holiness. Next week you're going to get into Leviticus. And oh boy, you're going to have fun in Leviticus. Clean and unclean. Clean and unclean. Animals are clean and unclean. Sexual practices are clean and unclean. Body, bodily fluids are clean and unclean. Clothes are clean and unclean. All sorts of things are clean and unclean. What's all this clean and unclean? Leprosy and skin diseases. Clean and unclean. What's all this clean and unclean about? All this clean and unclean is about those things representing that cleanliness represents holiness. Now, I, dis- I love John Wesley. I disagree. I think this quote was ascribed to him. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I don't think, for all you messies out there, don't worry about it. You're good. 
you're good, all right? My wife posted something on Facebook, and it was, uh, it was, what was it? I knew you were an unstable person when you put the toilet paper the wrong way on the roller. And I replied, I said, I knew you had OCD when it mattered. Little little marital stuff going on there on Facebook for you all. And uh, listen, there's nowhere in the Bible that says cleanliness is next to godliness. The cleanliness it talks about, the ritual cleanliness it talks about, is talking about holiness. Our souls are dirty. We even talk about sin that way, right? What do you say about an old man who lusts after young women? What do we call him? He's a dirty old man. He's a dirty old man. What do we call a corrupt politician? They're dirty. He's a dirty, he takes bribes. He's dirty. All right? We use that phraseology for, for sin. It's dirt. It's dirt on the soul. And we talked about that Christ's atonement covers the dirt on our soul. Uh, but we're unclean. In, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, leprosy is considered unclean because leprosy was considered highly contagious and it, and it, attacked, it attacked the organ of your body, the skin of your body, and it, it's like sin. It's a rotting thing. It rots you out. It deadens you to your feelings, to your neurological feelings, just like sin deadens you, deadens your conscience to your, to your feelings for God and your love for others, and it's contagious. You hang around sinful people, you get sin. You become unclean, and so, you have to, yeah, so, so it represents sinfulness. What happens in the New Testament? It doesn't mean that clean and unclean doesn't matter. It just means now that Jesus has come, in the Old Testament, if you got too near sin, you got to become like the sinner. It was contagious. You got what he caught. In the New Testament, because the blood of Christ covers all sin, now Jesus comes, he puts his hands on the sinner, and what happens? You don't get leprosy, he gets clean. But cleanliness represents holiness, approachability to God. The basin... Outside of the holy place represents washing. Before you come into the holy place, you need to be washed. Guess what, dear ones? Before you come into the holy place, you need to be washed. And Christians, we have a powerful rite of initiation. We have a powerful symbol that we practice that allows us to come into the holy place. Repent, believe, and what? Be baptized. Get washed. Uh, my, one of my favorite bands is Need to Breathe. Anybody like Need to Breathe? All right. Washed by Water. Washed by Water, one of their big hits. It's about baptism. My daddy was a preacher. Not everybody thought he was perfect, but he was washed by water. I was washed by water. I'm not perfect, but I was washed by water. You are washed in the basin. You are clean, and now you are prepared to enter the holy place. You have been baptized by Christ. All right, we get into the holy place. What happens? Things change from bronze to gold. Things change from bronze to gold. All of a sudden, there's glory. There's, there's abundance. There's beauty. There's, it's spectacular. It's glorious. As we enter deeper into God's presence, as we come into his presence. And in the holy place, there are three, three pieces, well, four, really, pieces of furniture. Four symbols. First, there's the lamp. The lamp has seven, seven lights that never go out. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible. It's the number of perfection. It's God's number. When, it's, when there's seven, it means it's done. It's right. It's good. It's heavenly. Six, that's human. Falls short. Not quite there. Misses the mark. These seven laps represent Jesus as the light of the world, and they represent us in Jesus as the light of the world. The light never goes out. John says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't put it out. Light defeats dark every time. All right, any of you ever do, you know, rock, paper, scissors, right, and and scissors defeat paper every time. Paper defeats rock every time. Rock defeats defeats scissors every time. Light defeats darkness every time. Darkness has never overcome light. In fact, all darkness is, is the absence of light. It's not a thing in itself. Light's a thing. 
but darkness isn't. We know the speed of light. We don't know the speed of darkness. There's no speed to darkness. It's just the absence of light. Boom. Jesus comes. The light of the world comes. We come to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit lights a light in us. That's what the oil, this oil never ends. This oil keeps flowing into this lamp. And the oil is the unending supply of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what burns within us. We're called the Firehouse Church. Why are we called the Firehouse Church? We're called the Firehouse Church because we're a church that wants to be full of the Spirit of God, full of the power of God, the, the, the ignition of God. Fire is energy. It heats you up. It made your car get here. All right? No matter how good or bad Brian's directions were, that fire got that car here. All right? The internal combustion engine. Little, little gas, oil-based product, little air, little oxygen, little spark, boom. There's an explosion. That explosion moves pistons and cylinders and it turns wheels. I don't know anything more than that, Peter, but am I, am I on track? Is it kind of, I'm good? All right. You all got here through a series of measured explosions. Measured explosions from the fire that comes from oil, oil-based product. That unending supply of oil is the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus and the life and ministry of his church that continues to bring light to the world. And for that oil to be transferred from olives to oil, it must be crushed. Psalm 53 speaks about Jesus and it says these harrowing words, these, these, these heavy words. It was the Lord's will to crush him. I'll tell you what. Life is crushing. But if I'm going to get crushed, I want to get crushed for something. I want the oil of God to come out of my life when I'm crushed. It takes a crushing. It takes a death to bring forth the power and the life of God. Jesus died on the cross. He was crushed. We die to ourselves. Not my will, but thy will be done. Holy Spirit, I surrender to you. There is no limit to what God can do through his completely surrendered life. When the oil is allowed to flow. Will it hurt? Yep. It'll hurt. Well, then I'm not sure I want to follow Christ. I'm not sure I want to be crushed. Well, you're going to be crushed anyway. You're going to be crushed anyway. Look at it, dear ones. If I'm going to suffer, I want it to count. If I'm going to struggle, I want it to count. I want God to be glorified. And I want to become more like Jesus. And I want to be a brighter light. And I want more of the Holy Spirit to flow through me. Listen, some churches, they pray for more of God. I get it. The language is bad. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, you can't get more of him. He's in you. But I guarantee there's more of him that can come out of you. And that's really what we mean when we say that. I mean, unless you're, unless you're just like spot on like Jesus, just in every way, then there's more of the Holy Spirit to get out of you, all right? So turn to somebody next to you and just ask them, are you spot on like Jesus? Are you there? Are you there yet? You know? Me? Not close, Peter. Not close. I mean, hopefully closer than I was 10 years ago. Hopefully closer than I was when I was 16 and gave my life to Jesus. Hopefully. All right. The showbread. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. They got communion in the tabernacle. Twelve loaves. Twelve loaves. What is that? that that's a number. Seven's a number. Twelve's a biblical number. Isn't twelve a biblical number? All right. Twelve's a biblical number. By the way, a little Super Bowl trivia. The number of the uniform of the quarterback that has won the most Super Bowls, and it's not even close. Twelve. Tom Brady. I mean, he took six of them. All right. Number 12. 
Patrick Mahomes is catching up with number 15, but it's number 12. Not that that has anything to do, that is not biblical typology. Don't worry, I'm not saying anything prophetic about that. Just a coincidence. All right, but, uh, but you know, I'm a sports nerd, so I know that. All right, but 12 is the number of God's governance. You have the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how God organizes and leads Israel through these 12 tribes. And then Jesus chooses 12 apostles. And the apostles then, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the apostles then set up this Christianity. And this Christianity has governed the world. You think, no, it hasn't. The world is crazy. The world doesn't follow Christian principles. A lot more now than it did before. Everything in Western culture has been influenced by these 12. Everything in Western culture has been influenced. Listen, we don't govern the way we think of governance. We don't govern by, you know, coming to power and making all the decisions and being in all the positions of rulership. And, yeah, we ought to vote for people who share our values, and that would be good if more people who shared our values were, uh, were in power. Uh, we would like that. That would be good. We think the world would be a better place. We think our country would be a better place. And, doggone it, people fought and died for you to, to have the right in America to, uh, to exercise your power to govern, to influence leadership, to influence our culture. It is a scandal and a shame when Christians don't vote. So say your prayers and vote your conscience. I'm never going to tell you how to vote. I'm never going to tell you how to vote. I am going to tell you, I am going to, tell you to vote. As long as you got that privilege, you're just a, uh, what, did, what did Sam Gamzee uh, in The Lord of the Rings? I know you're a Hobbit scholar, but are you also schooled in The Lord of the Rings? Uh, the gaffer called Sam Gamzee a ninny hammer, I think. That was his name for Sam. Yeah, it was a ninny hammer. Look it up. I'm pretty sure. All right, if you don't vote, you're a ninny hammer. All right, and I think that's Hobbit for knucklehead. All right, vote. Exercise your governance. But there's other ways Christians govern. There's other ways we govern. All right, and we'll get to that in the next piece of, uh, the next piece of furniture we look at. But we are, we are, we are supposed to ye- wield an influence. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Well, what do we need to shine? We need the Holy Spirit. We need the lamp. What else do we need? We need nourishment. We need food. We need bread. We need the life of Jesus to keep us on our feet. And so Jesus is our food for life. The Bible, is the, the Word of God, is, is the bread. Your prayers are the bread. This meal, quite, quite clearly, is the bread. His body, his blood, sustenance, food. People go to church, and what do they talk about? I go to church, and I want to be fed. I don't go to that church anymore because they weren't feeding me, all right? Which I always thought was lame, but, you know. They weren't feeding me the word. Well, look at if they're preaching biblical heresy, go. But you know what? If you're not, if you're just being lazy and expect the pastor to do all your Bible study for you, you know, I've been a Christian for 37 years, and you're still being spoon-fed in your high chair. Pick up your Bible and read it. Well, I don't understand it. Get a commentary. Look it up on. Man, it's never been easier. Look it up online. Google it. All right. Read more than one rendition because you might get some, you know, crazy person telling you what to believe. But dig in. Eat for yourselves. Pet peeve. Done. All right. I'm doing my best to try to give you the Bible, but hopefully, hopefully we're stirring up a little hunger in you too so you go after it yourself. I don't want to pastor people for 20 years and then leave and they go, well, now that Pastor Kevin isn't giving us the Bible, we just don't know what to do. Like, that'd be like my 20-year-old kids going, well, Dad doesn't change my diapers anymore. It's like, well, never mind. I don't want to take that analogy any further. <laughs> Jesus is our food for life. Commune with Jesus. Practice the spiritual disciplines. Eat the food. The final piece, uh, or the next pieces, the next two pieces of furniture in the holy place is the incense. How, how, one of the ways we govern is through intercession. We that just, just as Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity, Jesus is our intercessor. 
You know, a lot of people think Jesus is constantly praying for us. No, what Jesus is doing is his work on the cross is constantly working for us. It's not that he has to go to the cross time after time again. He went once and for all, but it works forever. Forever, he is the mediator between humanity and God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. There is no other mediator. Mary is not a mediator. The saints are not mediators. My dad used to look at me and say, oh, Kevin, I'm going to get to heaven on your coattails. And I say, you don't count on those coattails, Pop. Those coattails aren't going to get you to heaven. You're going to get to heaven on the blood of Christ, on faith in Christ. My job is to tell you that, not to provide your eternal intercessor. But I, do inter- but I did intercede for my dad in another way. And I interceded through what we call intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer, intercession and prayer is not the same thing. Intercessory prayer is a kind of prayer. It's a mediatory prayer. It's a prayer where we stand in the gap for some need on earth or some need in some person. That person's sick, we want them to be healed. That person is lost, we want them to be found. That person is, is, is out of a job, we want them to have a job. That person has a situation in their life where they're going to lose their home. We want them to have a home. And what we do when we intercede is we take those needs, those very real human needs, give us this day our daily bread, Lord, meet our daily needs. We take those needs, and from the perspective of earth, we bring them to heaven, and that's what the incense is. The incense represents the mediation of Jesus, and it also represents now our ongoing mediation in Jesus' name of prayers arising into the heavenly place. And because Jesus is our high priest, we come before God. We come before the Father with that incense, with those prayers. Those prayers make it to heaven. And the Bible says he hears us. We sang it tonight. I sought the Lord. He answered me. Seeking you shall find. Knocking the door shall be open. Asking it shall be given. And all of us have these two examples in our life. All of us have examples of answered prayer. Man, I did that and it worked. And then we have answers of this kind of thing. Man, I've been doing that for 20 years about this one situation. It hadn't worked yet. Yet. God's not in a hurry. You are. Don't give up. And if your prayer hasn't been answered, pray this prayer. Lord, is there a way you want me to, you know, am I knocking my head against the wall and a door's right there? Is there a different way you want me to pray about this? I just did that this morning. For 16 years, I pray the same prayer as I drive to church to Bremerton uh, Sunday morning. I pray, I, I pray three things. I pray that the Lord's presence would be there. I pray that the Lord would bring the people there he wants to be there. And I pray that the Lord would set a guard over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips and establish the work of my hands. Psalm 90. Well, Psalm 90, Psalm 141, kind of mixed together. All right? And you might be thinking, Kev, you need to pray that one harder. Set a guard over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips, and establish the work of my hands. Lord, I pray that you would be there. Lord, I pray that you would bring the people there that you want to be there. This morning I said, Lord, is that prayer, are those prayers working? And I said, is there another way you want me to pray on Sunday morning and Saturday night for the Firehouse Church? And I got nothing, so I'll stick with those three until I get something else. But every Sunday I've prayed those, or Saturday night, or both, I've prayed those prayers. And, uh, and that's earth to heaven. The second part of intercessory prayer is heaven to earth. We call that by different names. We call that prophecy. We call it declaration. Or we call it putting legs to the prayer. Lord! I want so-and-so to be saved. They're not saved. Lord, I want so-and-so to be saved. Earth to heaven. Lord, I want so-and-so to know the gospel. And all of a sudden you hear this voice. Go share the gospel with so-and-so. Lord, I want so-and-so to be saved. I know. Go, go share the gospel with so-and-so. I really want them to come to know you. Lord, go, go save so-and-so. Go, go share the gospel with them. Lord, I'd really like them to come to know Jesus. Go share the gospel with them. Lord, send them a Christian. I'm trying, child. Oh, oh, okay. Me? Go share the gospel? All right. All right. Well, okay. That's heaven to earth. The Lord says, I want to answer that prayer. You're involved. 
or sometimes it's just a matter of declaring prophetically what the Lord has said so that the person receiving has faith to receive it. A woman in our church years ago uh, was getting evicted. She was a renter. She was getting evicted from her house because the owners of the house were selling the house. And so she had to leave. And she loved the school district she was in. She loved the school and the principal. It's actually the same school our kids were in, a wonderful Christian principal. It's a good school. We loved it. And, uh, and she loved it, and she wanted her kids to stay in that school. But economically, it looked like she was going to have to move out of that district and send her kids to another school. She didn't have the resources, obviously, to send her kids to private school. She was full-time working. She didn't have time to homeschool. And she wanted her kids to stay in that school. And she came to me and said, Lord, you know, Kevin, I need prayer. I want to stay in this school district. It's just, it's just kind of priced beyond my ability to rent a house. All the rents are too high. And I prayed for her, earth to heaven. Lord, I pray that you will give her the right house at the right place, at the right price, by the right time. Week one. She was about a month out before she got evicted. Week two, came to me. Still need a house. Lord, I pray that you will get her the right house at the right place, at the right price, at the right time. All right, week three, I still need a house. Lord, I pray that you will get her the right house at the right place, at the right price, at the right time. In the name of Jesus, earth to heaven. God, here's the, your daughter has a need. She has a desire. We're bringing it before, the hev- before heaven. Week four, I got a week. I need a house. Otherwise, I've got one lined up, but it's in another school district. But I'm still hoping. And I was about to pray the same prayer. And all of a sudden, I'm not going to pray the same prayer because I hear this. Tell her I have the right house at the right place at the right price, and this is the right time. And so instead of asking God, I declared what heaven was saying, at least what I believed heaven was saying. I had that gift of faith. Just for an instance, came upon me. And I looked at her and I said, this week you're going to get the right house at the right place at the right price at the right time. This week. She smiled, walked away. And as quickly as that gift of faith came on me, it left me. She walked away and it was gone. And I turned to my prayer partner and I said, I hope that was God, <laughs> man of great faith that I am. Did I just set this woman up for terrible disappointment? Did I just speak wrongly about the will of God? And I don't want to do that. I don't want to prophesy wrongly. And I was like, and we've all had that, right? Where we think we're saying something from God, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, do I read that scripture to Karen tonight? Lord, is that from you? Yes. Lord, I don't want to just, you know, act like I'm being prophetic and it's not really coming from you and just, you know, do a bunch of, Holy Spirit-ish baloney, you know, and I just had this little conversation up here with God, and I just, there was no check. God just said, yeah, just read that to her. Just read that to her. Yeah, so there you go. God is good. God is good. But I had that little internal argument. I always do. And so I'm having this internal argument, you know, and next week I get to church, comes walking up to me. You know know the end of the story, right? She's got a big smile on her face. Like, guess what? I got the house. In fact, she got a house kitty corner to our backyard in our neighborhood. Uh, she was our neighbor, and her kids were able to stay in school. Happy ending. Uh, God, that's intercession. Intercession is, remember, it, two parts to the intercession. Heaven, or earth to heaven, and then heaven to earth. Some people make the mistake of thinking all intercession is, is earth to heaven. And then when heaven gives an answer... They still keep praying for the answer instead of activating the answer. Because God's going to use you often in the answer. Other people think it's all heaven to earth. If we just declare things, they're ours. We call that name it and claim it, right? You know, if I just declare it, I get it. Not if it's not heaven's will, you don't. So it's that both sides just take one half of the equation, but, but take the whole thing. Make your request known to God, but once you know the voice of God in that, once the scriptures speak or you have a dream or whatever, or direction, follow the direction. Do it. Intercession. That's what the incense is. And then there's the veil. Separating us from the Holy of Holies. This is a thick curtain. It's meant to be crossed only once a year by the high priest. Why? Because inside the veil is the presence of God. 
Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle when the glory was strong. The priest, when uh, Solomon dedicated the temple, very similar thing happens. The glory of the Lord descends, and, and none of the priests could enter, and Solomon couldn't enter. Uh, and the glory of the Lord was powerful, and the glory of the Lord was strong. God is omnipresent, but at different times, he lifts the veil. And you've experienced that. There have been times where you've been at church or in a conference or something, or even in your own prayer closet praying, and all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, the omnipresent God is in the room. And I can't stand anymore. Or my body's shaking, or, or I'm weeping. I mean, there, there were these two women that came to our church in Oakdale, and for three years, every time they came to church, they cried. And they just come up to me, why am I crying? Why am I crying? Why am I crying? I said, I think it's because the Lord, the Lord is revealing his presence to you. Okay. Okay, that's good. Yep, that's good. All right. Then we had people start laughing. Why am I laughing? Because I think the joy of the Lord, the Lord's presence is here, and the joy of the Lord is upon you. Okay, that's awesome. That's great. Now people fall down. Why did I fall down? Well, could you stand up anymore? No. That's why you fell down. You know, people say, when you pray for people and they fall, why do they fall? Because they couldn't stand. Why couldn't they stand? Better question. Because the glory of the Lord. Well, why do some people stand and other people fall? Because everybody's different. Everybody reacts different. All right? Who cares? All right. So, God is powerful. And sinful humanity, the high priest, man, he had to atone for his own sins. He had to atone for the sins of the people. They would tie a rope to his foot when he went behind a veil just in case he hadn't done the sacrifices right and he died. Because nobody's going to go in after him because what's going to happen if they go in after him? They're going to die, all right? They have to drag that poor guy out. I don't, I don't know in the history of Israel if they ever had to drag a guy out, but they were prepared. What? Well, you know, you're dealing with mystery here. Other people had died by bringing unholy fire to God. Other people had died in his presence. So it's like, eh. And God warned them, if you do this, if you do this wrong, if you do this sloppy, if you do this lazy, if you do this without attention to detail, you're going to die. All right, we don't want to die. Now, Jesus then becomes our perfect high priest, who's the one who goes behind the veil. In fact, we know at the crucifixion of Jesus, what happened to that veil in the temple? It was torn in two, not from the bottom, not from humans to God. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom, from heaven to earth. God tore the veil when the perfect high priest and the perfect lamb of God makes the perfect sacrifice. And now there is no longer a veil between the most holy place, the holy of holies, and humanity. There's no longer a veil between us and God because the perfect priest has made the perfect sacrifice. And so finally there's the Holy of Holies. Only one piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, but it's got stuff to it. That's the Ark of the Covenant. That's the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, all theology in Raiders of the Lost Ark is bad. But the movie's awesome. The movie's awesome. And the theme song is awesome. Everything about that movie is awesome. The, the good guys win. The Nazis lose. The guy gets his girl. It's, all, it's a great movie. It's just, it drives me nuts when the archaeologist or when the, when the government comes to Indiana Jones as the archaeologist and they talk about the Ark of God and why does, why does Hitler want it. And, uh, and Indiana Jones goes, haven't you read your Bible? The Ark contains the power of God. And when the armies of Israel went out with the Ark, it blew the, its enemies away and all that. And it's like, no, Indy, you haven't read your Bible. The only time they took it out to defeat their enemies, they lost it. The ninny hammers, they lost it. So Indy hadn't read his Bible. Uh, anyway, the ark is made of acacia wood covered with gold. I think that's a type of Christ or a type of a picture of what Christ endured. Acacia wood was the most common wood in the desert. It wasn't like Washington where you just went out and there's just wood everywhere. Uh, um, acacia wood was, was it. It's a hard wood, but it's also the wood, the branches of the acacia tree are filled with thorns. And it is almost certain that the crown of thorns placed on the head of Jesus was made of acacia wood. 
and then that's covered with gold. What does, that tell, what does that tell us? The same thing that the olive tells us, that the glory comes with the suffering. The crown of thorns and the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the very pieces, the very uh, um, articles that made up the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, the revelation of God, the heart of God. This is how you live in covenant relationship with me. This is what heaven's going to look like. There's going to be one God. There's going to be no idols in heaven. Nobody's going to misuse the name of the Lord God in heaven. Everybody's going to honor their parents. There's going to be no murder. There's going to be no adultery. There's going to be no theft. There's going to be no lying. We're going to have a perpetual, I left that one out. We're going to have a perpetual Sabbath, an eternal Sabbath rest. You ever like one of those mornings when you wake up and you've got nothing pressing? Isn't that a great feeling, right? Finals are done. First day of spring break or whatever. And you wake up, it's like, do I have to study anything? No. Do I have to prepare for a test? No. What's the most pressing thing I have to do? Yeah, get some breakfast. Maybe by around 10 or 11, I might brush my teeth. What a day. What a day. I remember uh, I went to school a long time, largely my fault. I crammed a four-year degree into six. Then I crammed a three-year master's degree into four. And so I didn't get out, I didn't get out of, of uh, education until I was 28 years old. And I never liked going in the first place. But I remember my first September when I did not have to go to class and get one of those ridiculous syllabuses from those terrible teachers who thought that their subject was the most important thing on God's green earth. You know what I'm talking about? These professors like, if you don't know this... You're just lost. It's like, no. I'd go to seminary. It's like, the book of Hosea is the key to the whole Bible. No, it's not. Just because you wrote a commentary on it. That was such a great feeling. Never having to go to school again. Doesn't that feel good, Isaiah? You want to go to school? Oh, yeah, you want to be a teacher. You want to go to school forever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I want to go back. All right. The Ten Commandments. Eternal Sabbath, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. We're all going to be satisfied, happy, content, thankful. It'll all be good. We'll be thankful for the, for the rewards of one another. We'll look, at, we'll look at each other and go, man, yeah, that's right. That's right. Man, I am so glad he deserved that. He, he got that. God rewarded him. I'm so happy for him. There's going to be no envy, no like, oh, why didn't I get that? We'll just be like, ah, that's awesome. All right. The revelation of God is in the ark. The manna of God, the food of God, the provision of God. So all in the glory of Christ is God's revelation, his heart, his voice, his word. All in, all in, God's, all in God's ark, all in God's uh, uh, provision, our, our, our sacrifice. There is provision for us. There is daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. God provides for us. And then there's the, there's the, the, uh, the staff of Aaron. This is the most amazing one. The staff of Aaron, a dead piece of wood. And yet, it perpetually is in blossom. Life from death. Let me tell you something about almonds. I know a little bit about almonds. Some of my best friends are almond farmers, almond ranchers. Central Valley of California, if you've ever been there, almonds, 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 almonds. It's the leading producer of almonds in the world. In fact, they, they, they produce so many almonds, they don't even pronounce it almonds. They have their own slang for it. Anybody know the slang? Almonds. If you go to the Central Valley of California and you don't want to look like a foreigner, don't, sit, don't ask somebody, are those almond trees? No, no. Here's your look at them almonds. I asked a, I asked a rancher one time, a, a guy who grew almonds. I said, why do you call them almonds instead of almonds? He says, you've got to knock the L out of them and get them out of the trees. So... Okay, but that nobody, nobody calls them almonds there. It's almonds. You want some almonds? I don't know, you know, Hershey, Hershey with almonds. All right, but here's the thing about almonds, or almonds. They're the first to blossom. They're the first tree to blossom. They blossom in the middle of winter. 
fact, right now, if you went to the Central Valley of California, the almonds would be blossoming. They love water there, but they hate water. They're getting actually storm right now. And, they, and I know that unless the almonds blo- blossomed a little earlier, they're all nervous about it because the storm's going to do what? It's going to knock the blossoms off, and the crop's not going to be as good. And they're going to be, oh, we don't have a good crop. Of course, they, never, they don't lose a dime when they don't have a good crop. You know what happens when the crop's not good? Price goes up. You know what happens when they get lots of almonds? Price goes down. You think they'd be happy about that stability, but if you talk to them, you go, you go, hey, you got a good crop? Oh, we got a great crop. Isn't that awesome? No, price is going to be low. Oh, what happened this year? Oh, the rain came and knocked all the blossoms off. We're going to have a low crop. Well, the prices are going to be high. Oh, yeah, but we got a low crop. It's like I, something about the something about the makeup of farmers. It's like they're the least optimistic. They're all driving new Chevy trucks, living on acres and acres of abundant. They're 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 filthy rich property wise. I don't know if they have any cash, but they they're living on acres and acres of valuable California real estate, and they're all like, oh, it's going to be a bad crop. Now, now, granted, they dress like poppers. Nobody's dressed worse than almond ranchers. I'm just saying, they all shop at Goodwill. That's their deal. But uh, but they're rich. All right. So here's the deal. Almonds are the first to bud in the middle of winter, in the middle of death, in the middle of when everything else is dying. What happens? These blossoms come forth. And by the way, they're beautiful. The Central Valley of California is a lot like eastern Washington. It's kind of ugly. It's kind of brown and ugly and dry. But if you go there in the middle of February, you'll go through orchard after orchard of almond blossoms. And if you can see through through the gooey smattering of bees on your window... If you can see the orchards, what you'll see is these creamy white with a hint of pink blossoms, as far as the eye can see, on these green pasture orchards, because that's one of the few months of the year where they have enough rain uh, that, the, that the grass is green. It is just gorgeous. And it's the sign of what? Guess what? Spring's coming. Life is coming. Jesus is the almond blossom. He's the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. That is in the ark. I'm getting almost done, people. I know this one's long. I know it's Sunday night. Stick with me. All right. If you want me to just quit right now and not bring it home, raise your hand. Not you, Sydney. I don't trust you. (laughs) Finally, there's the mercy seat. The cherubim with their wings out. On the top, on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, two cherubim facing each other. And between the cherubim is where the glory dwells. That's the hot spot. That's the spot. That's the presence. That's where God is. And every other culture in that in that society would have put an idol there. Not Israel. Nope. He is unapproachable light. His glory is manifest in a cloud and a fire and bushes that don't burn. And but he's not. We we don't have. We don't have an image of him because he told us not to make an image of him because he's not a little block of wood or he's not a piece of sculpted gold. But his presence is real. And when the blood touches that mercy seat, Israel gets to keep dwelling with God. And when the blood by the perfect lamb, who is the perfect priest, comes into the holy of holies before God the Father, He brings us, according to Hebrews 4, where we find mercy and grace for every time of need. Not shame and condemnation. You haven't gotten over that sin yet? Well, God's not going to answer your prayers. Neener, neener, skabiner. You're going to die in his presence. You're not really a Christian. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't do that anymore. Guess what? That's not the voice of God. The voice of God is your sins are forgiven. Here's my spirit of grace to transform your life. Abide in me and you will become like me. But God, I'm not doing it perfectly. Yeah, got that. If you did, I wouldn't have taken those nails. I got that. Isn't that great? God has mercy and power to do better, power to transform. I want to say to you tonight, with complete authority, put in this position to proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
to proclaim to you the word of God, that as you have put your faith in Christ and submitted to Christian baptism, repented of your sins, and said, I don't want to be in control anymore. I want God to be in control of my life. Your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. None of them will ever separate you from God because of what Christ has done, the mercy seat. Isn't it great, the name, even in the Old Testament? It wasn't called the judgment seat. It's called the mercy seat. God is about mercy. He abounds in mercy and abounds in love. We find mercy and grace in God's presence. And finally, Revelation 21.3. The tabernacle represents to us the heart of God, and then the culmination is found in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Remember the tabernacle? God desires to be with his people. I got great news for you. God wins. He gets what he wants. I I recited it earlier. Neither life nor death. Angels or demons. The past or the present. Height nor depth. Can stop God from dwelling with you. Can separate you from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. God has done what we could not do. God has done what we could not do. And dear ones, amazing as it may seem, because some of us don't think very highly of ourselves, and sometimes we shouldn't think very highly of ourselves. I'm not, just, I'm not a total self-esteem guru. We kind of mess up. I'm not, we're not trying to create egomaniacs here. But some of us listen to the lies of the devil. The lies of the devil aren't that, oh, you sin. The lies of the devil are, oh, you sin, and because of your sin, God doesn't love you. And you're never going to get, and you've got this wrong, and it's never going to be made right. Dear ones, I'm here to tell you that's a lie. The cross of Jesus says that's a lie. The tabernacle points. It's so, it points to that event. It points to that man. And that man who is fully God will bring us home. You win in him. You win in him. We sang these troubles, we got them. But you just hear that? Revelation 21.3, neither death nor pain, suffering, grief, the old things are passing away. You know how long forever is compared to Monday morning? Right? Compared to that headache you got, or even compared to that profound grief you've experienced. The old things are passing away. And dear ones, as I get older, I realize, man, they're passing away fast. They're passing away fast. Why is it that life accelerates when our bodies stop accelerating? It's like when we're kids, we run fast, but it takes forever for Christmas to be here. Now, man, I'm... I move, what's that? Uh, I move pretty slow. Petticoat Junction, Uncle Joe, <laughs> he's moving pretty slow. <laughs> That's me. All right, I move pretty slow, but man, life moves fast. I turn around to my wife and go, what, another Christmas? You know? It's passing away. It's passing away. Hold on to your future. Hold on to your hope. If you're having trouble doing that, remember, Remember, and feed yourself tonight on the nourishment that is communion. Feed yourself spiritually on his spiritual presence in this meal. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to come tonight and feed us what is physically simple bread, wine, juice, becomes for us as we take it by faith, the very life of Jesus, entering us, living in us, nourishing us, feeding us, sustaining us.
Thank you, Jesus, for your invitation. Thank you for what you did to make this possible. And we now gladly take the food of God. We pray for the life and strength of you, Jesus, the bread of life living in us this week so that we'll live more like Jesus this week than we did last because you are with us.